It's humid, sweaty, and sticky. Summer can be really uncomfortable. But we're actually talking about your mattress. Don't worry, though. Nectar's Nectar Tech cooling technology helps you sleep cool on hot summer nights. Plus, every mattress includes a one-year trial, forever warranty, and free shipping. With $200 off, prices start at only $399. And get $499 of premium accessories, including pillows, sheets, and a mattress protector this summer. So chill out and visit Nectarsleep.com. We are approaching one of the biggest decisions this country will face in our lifetimes. Whether to remain in a reformed European Union or to leave. There's 150 billion pounds worth of trade. 323,000 net immigration. I think the debate's degenerated into the worst form of negativity and brought out the worst in Westminster politics. We are Great Britain. We can achieve great things. It is not only stupid, it is damn dangerous. On Thursday, the 23rd of June, we get to decide at the referendum whether we want to stay in the EU or leave the EU. Now, what I think is that what we all desperately want is just a bit of clarity, someone to lay out the arguments for and against and to tell us which figures and projections that are out there we should believe and which we should just laugh off as scaremongering horseshit. And obviously, I'm the man to do that. Uh, I tried to do it before the general election last year for the whole of UK politics, so surely I can manage it for a little thing like EU membership. The good news is... Uh, I'm going to have a bash. The bad news is it's really fucking hard uh, because fundamentally there are just so many variables and no one actually knows what's going to happen in either case, staying in or leaving. Lots of people uh, are tailoring guesswork to their gut feeling and picking and choosing numbers and metrics and scenarios that best fit what they've decided to argue for. That's pretty unhelpful in the end. Uh, the whole thing has been extremely obtuse and consequently I have no idea how I'm going to vote. So, I'm going to sit down with a variety of people on different sides of the argument and see if I can figure it out. Uh, hopefully, it will be helpful to some of you too. What I'm not going to do is tell you what I decide or what way I think you should go. That is all yours. Let's get some basics out of the way first. What is the EU and where did it come from? Well, after World War II, people thought maybe a good way to prevent wars is by having countries trading with one another. The logic being, if you're buying from and selling to a country, you're less likely to jeopardise that by kicking off. And to be fair, that does seem to have worked. So initially, you had the European Economic Community, the EEC, which was formed in 1958 by six countries, including France and Germany. This was focused solely on trade, making it easier and ultimately cheaper to buy and sell each other's stuff. In 1973, the UK joined the EEC, and in 1975, the British public voted to stay in, the first ever UK-wide referendum. This upcoming UK-wide referendum is only the third in our history. The EU effectively evolved out of the EEC. It was established by the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. When we joined, it consisted of nine member states, and had a population of 250 million. Now, the EU has 28 member states, 19 of which share the euro currency, and a population of 500 million. Crucially, it's no longer just a trade-based entity. Now, through various treaties, it's also a political union. And Brussels, the de facto capital of the EU, has influence over many policy areas. More of that later. 
It's the world's largest single market in which the usual tariffs and baggage that come with international trade have been done away with. For many, this referendum is simply a question of sovereignty, which means who's in control, who's in charge, the British people or the European Union, and who should really get to call the shots. We don't really have control over key issues and policies that we should have control over. So, say, for example, if in the EU they had a level of control over our health system, everyone would be an outcry about it. The same if it was education. say Mitchell, columnist, novelist and campaigner, who will be voting leave. But if you have a democracy and you don't like what's happening, you can actually go to the ballot box and vote people out. You can vote Cameron out. We can't vote out the European president, Jean-Claude Juncker. We don't have that. One of the things that jumped out at me was the so-called tampon tax, which was a VAT on sanitary products. So it's a big thing for women. Everyone agrees this is wrong. Parliament agrees this is wrong. In a democracy, that would be it. We would be able to change it. But we weren't able to change it. George Osborne then had to go off to Brussels to get the say-so, can we actually do this? Now, does that sound right to you in a democracy, that we haven't got a say over something like that? And that's what I feel, is there's a continual erosion of people's democratic rights. People have fought long and hard in Britain to get democracy. An organisation outside to erode it is not right. I see this as a battle not between left and right, but ultimately between uh, the people and uh, a democratically unaccountable elite. James Dellingpole, writer and columnist who wants us to leave the EU. Fundamentally, it's about the basic principle of democracy. I've always believed that politicians should be our servants. The European Union seems to me a fundamentally anti-democratic exercise. I mean, we get the illusion... Of, of control in that obviously we can vote for our MEPs, but the European Parliament in which those MEPs sit around listening to boring speeches and not much else, <laughs> it's, it's a toothless organisation. Uh, all the, the power is controlled in the European Commission who ultimately decide the laws. On 70 occasions we've tried to vote against EU policy and on 70 occasions we've been defeated. The, the, the argument simply doesn't wash. We have no influence whatsoever within the EU. That 70 uh, that, that we lost out on is actually quite a, a small number relative to the amount that we have willingly passed through. It's nearly like 3,000, isn't don't it? For, don't forget, Rick, that, that these are the issues on which we felt so strongly that we really, really wanted to resist. I think, I think when you work within the EU, you know that the, the, there's really not much point making a stand on most issues because it, because it's not going to go your way. I can't bear the thought that somebody else is making decisions for us. That really bugs me. David Pearl, owner of property firm Pearl & Coots, who's undecided. I had a, an interesting situation. They said, can you name anybody that's in the European Parliament? And I didn't know the names of one person in the European Parliament. And somebody asked you another question. Tell me the names of people in the government. And, you know, if you sat down now, I could name maybe four or five. Can't name all of them. I don't know them. Do you know them all? I reckon I might be able to get double figures. You'd but I'd be pleased figures. if I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we don't even know who's running us at the moment.
The structure of the EU is quite complicated and made up of lots of different parts. Four key bodies within it, which unhelpfully all have quite similar names, are the European Council, made up of the head of state or government from each country, so David Cameron in our case, which decides the general direction of the EU, which is quite vague. The European Commission, which has a representative from each member state, not elected by the people. This lot propose EU laws and a spot prize to anyone who knows the name of our commissioner. Anyone? No, didn't think so. The Council of Ministers or Council of the EU, which consists of one government minister from each state, depending on what's being discussed. So there's a kind of rotating lineup. And the European Parliament, which is elected by the people of Europe. We have 73 MEPs representing the UK, out of a total of 751. So, how do this lot arrive at new laws and regulations? Well, as I said, the European Commission proposes new laws and then the Council of Ministers and the European Parliament approve them, or not. One thing to look at is how often UK ministers are on the winning side of votes. Since 1999, they've been on the winning side 95% of the time, abstained 3% and lost 2%. That being said, not all EU decisions can be passed against the UK's wishes. Some require unanimous approval in areas like taxation, justice, foreign affairs and the EU budget. If the UK is totally opposed to such a law, it's unlikely to even make it to a vote. There is no doubt that the UK has benefited tremendously over, over, over the past few years and certainly since the last major referendum in the mid-70s, you know, the UK is almost unrecognisable and I think it's a much better place. James Eden, Managing Director of British clothing label Private White BC, who will be voting to leave. Having said that, now is an appropriate time to rethink, reevaluate how we govern ourselves, how we govern our practices, our businesses, our integration with society. And I think this is possibly, my generation's anyway, last and only opportunity to really put into place a major change in our way of doing things. There's some stuff that you would probably argue is very good coming from the EU, like workers' rights, that may be eroded if we leave. Once again, that comes down to our elected leaders. If we're not happy with the sorts of laws that they are uh, implementing, then every four years we have the ability to decide and dictate who we bring in to govern. When it comes to things which actually, the absolute key things that matter to people, our education system and how much it's funded, the NHS, how it's run and how it's funded, housing, how it's built, the quality of it, the amount of housing that's built, that's our government. Owen Jones, political commentator and Guardian columnist, who will be voting to remain. We've got legislation passed in the European Parliament. We elect that European Parliament. It's an elected body. I'd like them to have more power. I just think it's so simplistic to just say, you know, all these laws coming from Brussels. It's negotiated and agreed to for very good reasons, but the key areas that affect us in terms of how we run this country are here. Two of the things that I think are really important are, firstly, tax avoidance. We've got billions of pounds lost on an industrial scale because rich people think they're too rich to pay taxes. You can't deal with that issue one country at a time because if one country clamps down on it, they just go to all the tax havens elsewhere. So you've got to have collective action. Because of all the anger we've had at the EU level, they've all got together to come up with agreements to tackle on that issue. Is it enough? No, but it is something. And that does mean billions of pounds of money we wouldn't otherwise have. And the same with climate change. That's a massive threat to the future of our human civilization especially younger people are going to face the brunt of that and again because of pressure from below eu leaders have for example committed to a 40 percent target to reduce carbon emissions by 
2030. Is that enough? No, but it is something. It's a lot and it will help. And again, you can't do that one country at a time because one country at a time will think I will be at a competitive disadvantage if I decide to cut back and take you know, the economics consequences. If they all do it, then they don't suffer that. That's why we have it at the EU level. All of that will go. And actually, finally, in that point of democratic accountability, if we want access to the free trade area, then you have to accept the rules that exist in the European Union. The difference is we won't be able to contribute to them. So now what will happen is, if we want access to that market in the way we have now, then we will still have to abide by many of the rules that govern that whole area. We just won't be able to contribute to what they are. Just how many UK laws and regulations are determined by the EU? It'll be helpful to know since it's a big part of the referendum debate. Unfortunately, you guessed it, it's hard to say. I've heard Nick Clegg say that a mere 7% of UK legislation is based on EU law. I've heard Nigel Farage say it's actually 75%. The House of Commons Library said that between 1997 and 2009, it was possible to justify any measure between 15 and 50%, depending on the approach. What? How can that be? Well, there's several reasons. Firstly, there isn't a single definition of UK law. So to some extent, you can pick and choose what you say is a UK law according to what figure you're trying to come up with. Often the EU's influence on a piece of UK legislation is indirect, meaning you can argue it either way. And of course, some laws simply have more impact than others. Some won't even really apply to us, like laws on olive growing, irrelevant in the UK. So a simple count wouldn't really tell us that much anyway. What we can do is look at specific sectors. There are areas in which the EU is the main driver of UK policy and law, things like agriculture, the environment, uh, external trade and fisheries. In other areas, EU influence is far more limited, areas like welfare, criminal law, the NHS and education. What are the chances of us being able to successfully reform the EU in the way that you would like us to because it it strikes me that you know earlier this year David Cameron was going around trying to renegotiate the, the terms of our of our membership with all of the the heads of state and came back with not a great deal when you think that this would be a pretty strong position to negotiate from where you're kind of saying listen guys we might leave so you're going to need to offer us something pretty significant uh, to incentivize us to stay so if we vote to remain are we more or less likely to be able to push through reform? In terms of changing Europe, well, for one thing, what we've had is more powers given to the European Parliament. Not enough, but some. We just don't talk about it. And the reforms David Cameron wants aren't necessarily the reforms that I would support because sure. my vision of the European Union is a democratic, accountable uh, Europe running the interests of the majority. His is a Europe dominated in the interests of big business. And that's why... He vetoed an EU treaty a few years ago, you know, standing up for British sovereignty and so on. But it was actually because it, it would affect the City of London. What does he passionately support? The Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership that gives companies the ability to sue elected governments in secret courts. So his vision of Europe is, is not a democratic, accountable Europe. It's a Europe running the interests of a tiny elite. The points I was making in terms of how we can change it. Well, firstly, getting action on tax justice, tax avoidance, so we actually recoup billions of pounds to use for our services. I think that is reforming. And similarly, coordinated action on climate change to stop our human civilization being destroyed. I think that's pretty crucial reform. And similarly, that TTIP, Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership, I keep going on about, well, because of people's campaigning and determination all over Europe, 
that is now in rubble. They've been forced to listen. So we can get reform. There is an economic argument um, against the EU, but it's not an argument for leaving. Anne Pettifer, economist and co-founder of Prime Economics, who will be voting to stay in. I think there are arguments to be made about the structure of the EU, about the dominance of the central bank, the absence of a fiscal authority, the flaws in the treaties, the fact that, that economics is embedded like concrete inside the treaties is so that it's impossible to be flexible when there's a crisis. But those fiscal rules, the Maastricht Treaty, were designed by Brits. If you look at all the major architects of the Maastricht Treaty and other treaties, the British civil service were at the heart of those negotiations. It was a British civil servant that ushered in the euro, even though we refused to join it. So if we're going to do something about the European Union, we have to start here. And we won't be able to do that if we get stuck with Nigel Farage and others as our leaders. Is this referendum about who we are as a society? Is it a question of being European, standing together with our continental neighbours and embracing the benefits of the free movement of people within the EU club? Or is this referendum our once-in-a-generation chance to reaffirm our proud heritage as an island nation, to take back control of our borders and carve out our global future on our own terms? I'm comfortable working with European partners in a way that I'm not comfortable, if you like, with the United States as a partner. I see the United States as incredibly imperialist. I don't see myself as belonging to the China bloc either, although for both of those, of course, we have friends and relationships. Really, I'm most comfortable with my European friends and partners because of shared cultural experiences, of shared struggle over democracy. You know, so much of what we're about is owed to that history. But I think perhaps the biggest issue for me is that it's been international cooperation and collaboration which have kept the peace in Europe for more than 50 years. And that's incredibly important. It's a huge achievement and it matters for the future. Do you think that it would not be possible to continue to collaborate with European countries and the EU if we left? I think it would be much harder. I think we, as an island nation, don't really understand and appreciate the yearning there is across Europe for solidarity and for peace. I struggled when the Greeks insisted on staying in, even after they had been treated so badly by the German government, but also by the European Commission and the IMF over their debt negotiations. But I came to understand that as a sort of yearning on the part of the Greek people to belong to something bigger than themselves, something that they thought would guarantee their democracy and would prevent their elites from going bad on them, if you like. When Yanis Varoufakis, who was the finance minister of Greece, says that we should all stand together and try and reform the European Union, I want to support him and work with him on that. You know, when I think about the EU, I think it's kind of a real backward notion that we should just keep thinking about ourselves as European. We're not European. We're global. We're international. That's how we should be working. So if we left the EU, it's not like we would leave Europe behind. What we could actually have the opportunity is to create some exciting and new partnerships within Europe, but also be thinking about, you know, looking 
to the outside world. Britain is the fifth largest economy in the world. We can do it, sure, if we left, there'd be a period of shift and change. There always is. But, you know, think about some of the amazing things that have happened in the world. There's always been that kind of, you know, wobbly bit with change. But does that mean because we have that transition period, we shouldn't change? We should, you know. I find it outdated, but it's not the only thing we need to be talking about. People feel that they've lost the democratic right to talk about something like immigration because issues to do with immigration rest outside of, of Britain. Although what I would say is if we did leave, you know, we would still have migration. So if people think all of a sudden we're going to shut our doors and so they're voting leave, that's not what's going to happen. And I'm grateful that's not going to happen. Rightly or wrongly, immigration has become a big issue during this referendum campaign. The four key principles of the EU are free movement of goods, services, capital, which is basically money, and people. The people bit means that EU citizens can move around the member states of the EU as they please, with no need for visas or work permits or anything like that. Some who want to leave the EU want to do so in order to, and this is a phrase you will have heard a lot, take back control of our borders by putting a stop to freedom of movement of people. They believe that too many immigrants are coming to the UK and that this is putting a strain on our public services, such as the NHS, schools and housing, and also lowering wages for already low-paid jobs. The Remain camp argue that immigrants actually help the economy and pay more in in taxes than they take out in benefits. There are about 3 million non-British EU citizens in the UK, which is about 5% of the population. 2 million of them are in work. In 2015, EU net migration was around 185,000. So 270,000 came in and 85,000 Brits emigrated to the EU. That's still slightly less than non-EU net migration, so people coming in from outside the EU, which is around 188,000. These numbers are just estimates, though, so the margin for error is quite large. Before 2004, when 10 new member states joined the EU, net yearly EU migration was around 10,000. In 2010, prior to becoming Prime Minister, David Cameron said he wanted to return net migration to 1990s levels and to see immigration in the tens of thousands. That was effectively setting a target to reduce net migration, EU and non-EU, to less than 100,000. He has been unable to do this, and EU net migration is at its highest recorded level. People have lots of concerns about immigration. There's sometimes this idea, oh, people like me want to shut down that discussion, but I don't even remotely think that. I think we should all talk about it, and people do. People I grew up with have concerns about immigration. I mean, I would say I grew up in Stockport, and no disrespect to my beloved hometown, but people flocking to Stockport is not amongst its biggest problems. People leaving is more of an issue. Its population is actually falling. And, uh, you know, only about 2 to 3% of the population are immigrants. But nonetheless, when people think there's pressure on public services, then obviously what we should do, given we know EU migrants pay in more than they get back, we should ring-fence that funds and give it to those communities. And, you know, I would say that our public services would collapse overnight without immigration. We recruit one in four of our nurses from abroad. Why do we do that? Well, because year after year after year under this government, they've caught nurse training places so we don't train up nurses in this country because of cuts we have to bring them in from other countries instead uh, as an employer i'm very happy that we have east europeans coming into this country really happy they're better 
you don't get any grief on site. They get on with their job. It's been very, very beneficial for us. It's interesting because in no, maybe more than 25 years ago, every labourer was an Irishman. The Irish have gone now. It's just because they've become very prosperous, maybe because of the EU. In fact, definitely because of the EU. You know, you don't get an Irish labourer anymore. It's completely changed. All the Irish that I know now are property dealers, they're bankers, accountants, art dealers. They've changed their life around totally. For a lot of people, and quite understandably, immigration, it's, it's the key issue. I, I mean, I think one of the more interesting phenomena of this referendum campaign is people have been going <laughs> from, from London newspapers up north and, and, and interviewing real working-class people in some of the, the, the northern industrial heartlands. And they've been really quite astonished to find these people who would traditionally be Labour voters, all of them really, really eager to vote Leave. And I suppose they have this sense that we have lost control of our borders, that, that David Cameron has been unable to keep his promises about limiting immigrant numbers. Now, whether these people are right in thinking that immigration will end once we leave the EU is, is probably moot. But I think that what it, what it definitely will mean is that we will be able to be more selective about the kind of workers that we attract into Britain. I mean, the Australian point system does sound more sensible to me. My feel on the day of the referendum is this campaign hasn't been about having a nice balanced chat about immigration that's pros and cons. It's basically been trying to tap into pretty base and inflammatory anti-immigration sentiment, basically portraying foreigners as criminals and rapists. They released a list of EU migrants who'd committed rape and murder. You know, I think we're all aware that people from lots of different countries and backgrounds are capable of committing horror. I don't think that's, that's not a problem specific to people who've come from the European Union. But people have to be aware that those are the Leave campaigns. They are running this campaign on the basis of that kind of rhetoric. And obviously, if we vote to leave, it will be seen as a vindication of their campaigns, a campaign of the right wing of the Conservatives and UKIP. And clearly, for those of us who want to be able to have a rational debate about immigration, pros and cons and all the rest, for that sort of campaign to be vindicated, then that will be a scary day. And I think a lot of people will probably feel quite frightened. There is a bigger political issue, which is that if we exit from the European Union, we will destabilise the whole of Europe. We will find that nationalist and right-wing racists from across the continent, people like Mrs Le Pen, people like the Austrian fascist who very nearly won the presidency the other day. These are people who will jump on the Brexit bandwagon and move Europe to the far right. And the last time that happened, 60 million people died. So I'm feeling quite worried about that. And I just don't think we can fool around with that sort of thing because the risks are very, very clear. For a lot of us, this referendum ultimately comes down to money. Is my wallet better off inside or outside the EU? So we're a member of this club and we have to pay membership fees. But how much? There have been all sorts of different figures bandied about by both sides. So the Remain camp say, for every pound paid in tax, a little over a penny goes to the EU. Sounds reasonable. And the Leave camp say, we pay £350 million a week to the EU. Sounds much less reasonable. The UK definitely pays more into the EU than it gets back directly. In 2015, we paid £18 billion into the EU budget, but immediately got £5 billion back. That's our rebate. So then we're at £13 billion. 
Then, the EU spent about £4.5 billion on the UK, which takes our net contribution down to about £8.5 billion, and that works out at around £161 million a week. The EU also makes payments directly to the private sector, so things like research grants, which you could argue reduces our net contribution further. Leave campaigners don't like the fact that the money that the EU spends on the UK is spent where the EU wants to spend it, mainly on farming and poorer areas of the UK. They think we'd be better off keeping the money and allocating it ourselves. The real bone of contention, though, is what are the economic benefits of EU membership? This is very tough to quantify. Does membership of the EU bring in trade, jobs and investment? And what is that worth? Obviously, that depends who you ask. I think if you start to look at European economics, you very quickly see that uh, Europe is, as it stands today, a basket case. And I don't say that lightly. Ross Ashcroft, economist and founder of Renegade Inc., who will be voting to leave. When you look at the next, I'd say, three to five years, economic conditions don't look as though they're going to improve. You, you don't want to have directives and economic policy coming from uh, the EU when they have so many fundamental issues in, in, in so many economies across the eurozone. Recently, uh, German government bonds, their yields have dipped uh, below zero for the very first time. And that's the strongman, apparently, of Europe. If you go to Greece, well, we all know that that's bankrupt. If you go to Italy, we know that the banking system's in an incredible mess. And look at France. France's banking system doesn't really have a, a business model that is working. And then have a look at Spain. You have youth unemployment, 18 to 25-year-olds, uh, 53%. They are not healthy economies. Ours, in comparison, is a little healthier, but there's an awfully long way to go because an awful lot of people don't really think that we've had a meaningful recovery since 2008. Yes, house prices have gone back up, but when you start to look at real economic drivers, such as manufacturing, still our productivity is anemic. So, given that from an economic standpoint you think we should leave, are we going to be able to successfully negotiate the trade deals that we need to do business with not only Europe but globally? Or will we find it harder because we don't have the leverage of being a member of a huge trading bloc like the EU? I'm not sold on the leverage argument. I think that you know people use that as fear uh, and the fear of the great unknown. And my view is jump into it because every black and white argument on you know, the Brexit and the Remain side never really factors in nuance or, or shades of grey. Are you telling me that, for instance, you know, we've got 60 million people in the UK that trade tariffs are only going to go one way. So you're going to say to all the people uh, that we export to, right, you can put a trade tariff on the Brits. But hang on, all the stuff coming into the UK, we wouldn't do the same thing to. That would be commercial suicide for all the people who export to the UK, specifically the Germans who like to sell their cars here, amongst other things. And that also negates something else, which is that you can't take remedial action once you've made this decision. I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, make a, a decision either way and then work around it. So the prolonged negotiation about getting out, I don't think is as fatal as it's being painted. I think that is a scare tactic because people want to access our market. Get, get, get we buy more from the EU than we sell to the EU. This is called a trading deficit. In 2015, we flogged £223 billion worth of stuff to the EU and bought £291 billion worth of stuff off the EU. So the trade deficit is £68 billion. 
The opposite is true of our trade outside the EU. We sell more than we buy, giving us a trading surplus. In 2015, our non-EU exports were 288 billion and our imports were 257 billion, giving a trade surplus of 31 billion. The Leave camp say that because we buy more than we sell from the EU, we'd be in a strong negotiating position in the event of Brexit because it's in the EU's interests to keep trading with us. And would you believe, the Remain camp disagree. They say that as a share of exports, Britain is actually more dependent on the EU than vice versa. In, in the short term, what do you think will happen to our economy in the wake of Brexit? Not much. You know, I think that George Osborne, the British Chancellor, went hard for the your house price will go down by 18 to 25%. How does he know that? This is a man who has fundamentally failed to meet any of his own economic criteria, but suddenly becomes a sort of political mystic mag, looks into this crystal ball and says, you know what, I know within a range of about 7%, I can tell you that house prices are going to go down by this. Well, there's another aspect of this, which is are you using the Brexit argument to actually masquerade some of the dreadful economic decisions that have already been made? The problem we face is partly the European Union and its treaties, and in my view, they have to be amended, and European bureaucracies and elites have to be made more accountable. And we have to change the European Union so that it's not governed by Mr Draghi, who is the unelected bureaucrat that runs the European Central Bank. The United States is the elephant in the room here, and that all of these initiatives to override domestic sovereignty comes from the US and from big corporations based there. So I think it's absolutely essential that we should partner with countries in Europe to challenge the US's imperialistic ambitions. And the US is, is you know, a really very big, powerful country with an enormous and powerful military that I don't think we British on our own could challenge. We would act actually be as subordinate as we've been in the past. I think a relationship with Europe enables us better to challenge both the United States on the one hand and China on the other, and to act, if you like, as an intermediary between both. You know, the big question is, is the EU good or bad for Britain? But you need to ask yourself what Britain you're talking about. You know, are you talking about the business side of Britain? Are you talking about the working class side of Britain? Are you talking about young people living on council estates? Are you talking about people who are on short term contracts? And it's such a big sweeping question. But I think it's been a really interesting debate for us because I think without this referendum, we wouldn't be asking questions about the type of Britain that we are today and kind of recognising that the EU works for some people, but it doesn't work for others. Are you concerned that? If we leave, we're going to be in a situation where we're left to draw up our own workers' rights. For me, that issue about workers' rights is a red line, that in of itself, because that's what's on the table during this referendum. Because as part of our membership of the European Union, there are certain rights workers have to have. So part-time workers are given the same rights as full-time workers. Agency workers are given the same rights as permanent workers. That's important, not least because you hear about immigration undercutting wages. But if agency workers have the same rights as permanent workers, it, it stops them being used to drag down the wages of everybody else. Similarly, it guarantees paid annual leave. And the reason for having that all over the European Union 
it means you can't have countries competing with each other about how few rights they give their workers. You get a race to the bottom. And the Conservatives, particularly the right wing of the Conservatives, who are very passionately for Brexit, they don't want those workers' rights. They want to scrap them. And if we leave the European Union, they will come to power. It's wave goodbye time to those basic rights. And those are rights that millions of people depend on. That alone, just that one issue, is something people have to bear in mind when they're voting. Is there an argument to say that that's a slightly short-term view? Because this decision is for keeps, isn't it? Or, or, or we assume it is. And in theory, there's no reason that we couldn't come up with you know, a set of workers' rights that were just as strong for the UK on its own. And, and what we're worrying about is that the people who will be deciding in this government wouldn't go for that. But longer term, because we elect our government, presumably we can get rid of them and then some other people can come in and change that. Well, a general election could be years away, four years away, and those rights will go by the time we, we get into that election. And it's obviously difficult to reinstate rights that are lost. And yes, hopefully mm. a government would come to power at some point in the future that would restore those rights. But people have the chance now to vote democratically to support those rights as enshrined as part of our membership of the European Union. And it's just a simple statement of fact that the people who will then come to power they will be able to come to power and say, well, look, we got the majority of people behind our position. We ran the Leave campaign. And they will take that as a mandate to scrap those basic workers' rights. One of the things that is uh, to be taken from Europe and might be counterintuitive to the avid capitalist is that we should have strong unions. We should have brilliant workers' rights. Why? Because if unless workers and unions are spending into the economy, everything starts to wither. So what's happened in the UK, for instance, with Mike Ashley's zero-hour contracts at Sports Direct? Well, the EU hasn't stepped in and sorted that out. But why not? <laughs> because German unions are really strong. German workers' rights are really strong. Well, why haven't we had the, the kind of influence that they're preaching? And the answer is there's a political impasse. No one can really do anything. Do you think that if the vote is very close, which everything suggests it will be, that there's a chance that we will have a second referendum? I really don't think people should think about a second referendum. I think people should think if we have this vote, then the view of the British people should be respected. Look, if we vote for Brexit and that result isn't respected, then whatever my feelings on it, I would take to the streets and protest. What the British people say and decide, even if it's not for me, I just think we make a decision, we stick to it. No second referendum, just one referendum. So there you have it. This is the end of my quest to understand the EU referendum. Uh, I hope it's proved useful. One thing's for sure, this is a huge decision and one that will affect all of our futures. Let's hope we make the right one on Thursday the 23rd of June. Obviously, I don't know what the right one is. Try to see things my way Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? Why you see it your way On the risk of knowing that my love may soon be gone We can work it out We can work it out Breakup or Makeup was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by Rick Edwards and featured Dredesse Mitchell, James Dellingpole, David Pearl, James Eden, Owen Jones, Anne Pettifor and Ross Ashcroft. The executive producers were Colin Roach and George Lamb and it was produced by Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Manley. To hear more shows by Radio Wolfgang, go to www.radiowolfgang.com. 
radiowolfgang.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Hannah Burner, and do I have a podcast recommendation for you? Crazy coincidence, it's my podcast. Burning in Hell, it's a mental health comedy podcast where I get my guests to cry. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But you may know me from Bravo Summer House, my stand-up TikTok, who knows? I talk to people you look up to about their insecurities, their demons, the things that keep them up at night. I just had Morgan Apsher on from Two Hot Takes talking about how she created the hottest podcast out right now. I also had TikTok sensation Victoria Paris about what it's like coming out as bi and why she blocked everyone on the internet. Harry Jowsey's on talking about his new relationship. And I even had Sierra Miller from Summer House to talk about what it was really like filming in the Hamptons. Check out Burning in Hell, B-E-R-N-I-N-G. It's a pun on my last name. And I can't wait to take you to hell.